0: This is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with My Life and Dancing, written by Maude Allen and published in 1908 by Paul R. Reynolds Chapter 8 Stepping Stones A few people have been veritable stepping stones for me in my career, since 1903, and my successful appearance in Vienna, with words of praise from such clever and acknowledged authorities as Dr. Richard Wallacek, the brilliant author, Dr. Rudolf Lothar, and others, I turned, glowing cheeked and exulting, my face towards Brussels. Here it was a very great good fortune that befell me when I met Mr. Schlesinger, the president of the Cercle Artistique and Mr. Charles Casterman's, and Mr. Goethals, men of influence and friends of Mr. Remy. These people proved not only solid stepping-stones to fame for me, but I won them as friends, and their advice was of unmistakable importance to my career. I have, too, to speak of Natalie Townsend, wife of Lawrence Townsend, at that time the ambassador of the United States in Brussels. This charming, extremely clever woman, she is the composer of many delightful songs, gave me her protection. Through her, whose mental activity interested me greatly, I made my successful appearance in Brussels and won the applause and understanding of the artistic world of that city. Through Mr. Duchastain, Homme de Lettres, I met little Mademoiselle Bernard, a literary lady of eighty-one, with white, smoothly arranged hair, whose salon, the last of its kind, is renowned for its high intellectual tone, and is frequented by the highest in the land, She gave me many encouraging words. "'I cannot but feel the purity and refinement in your portrayals,' she said, "'and look forward to the day when your efforts will be universally acknowledged "'and treated with the reverence due them and with which they are given.'" This, from this world-experienced dear little woman, made my heart beat with joy, and I resolved then and there, however long it might take me, to try to reach the heights she had looked up to for me. I may not have done so yet, but, God helping, I will. Eugene Isai and Caesar Thompson and his adorable wife gave me, too, many a word of bright encouragement during my less enviable days, and it seems to me now that had I not had the blessed good fortune to meet and personally know all those brilliant people, I MIGHT HAVE FALLEN, TIRED AND FOOTSORE, BY THE WAYSIDE, FOR, AS I ONCE BEFORE SAID, THE ROAD TO COMPLETION OF A HEART'S DESIRE AND TO FAME IS LONG AND FULL OF STUMBLING STONES AND ALL UPHILL. MY SHORT PUBLIC CAREER, BEGUN IN 1903, HAS TAKEN ME FAR. I have appeared in many German cities, toured Switzerland and Austria-Hungary, and even in Belgrade I gave four recitals. Budapest was very novel, and there I had a glimpse of a gaiety unknown in more northern cities, and of enthusiasm born in a minute. What a nation, and what a sense of rhythm! Back in Munich, the very air seemed heavier, slower. Slower. It was in Munich that I received my first and only rebuff of a serious nature. I had an engagement to appear at the Schauspielhaus in a series of performances of my interpretations of music and Salome. The censor had given me its blessing, and all seemed satisfied when suddenly a verbot from the Bavarian government was issued against me. It proved to be the result of a political policy for the preservation of the public morals. A club of old men had petitioned Herr von Halden to issue this verbot, and being close to the election time, the request was granted, although the worthy gentleman admitted that he had not seen my dancing and could only judge from what the club members who had seen it reported. Otto Julius Bierbaum, one of Germany's cleverest and most widely known authors, defended me in my art in a feuilleton in the Berlin-Tagblatt of April 1907 most magnanimously, for which I thank him in grateful appreciation. In spite of petitions sent in by the famous Professor Franz Stuck and others who were keenly interested in my productions, Herr von Halden refused to withdraw his decision against Salome, and only through subscriptions was it possible to present this number to the Munich public. Needless to say, the subscription evenings were perhaps more successful than a regular one would have been. And why? Because my audience was a purely artistic and intellectual one. Paris was the scene of my next engagement, I had longed to visit Paris and its wonders, and the train seemed never to get there. At last we were spinning from the station through traffic-crowded streets. I don't think, though, it impressed me as I had dreamed it would. I took up my abode in a nice little hotel near the Opera, Hotel de Londres in New York, and, although all alone, felt quite happy and comfortable. My chief interest was naturally centred in the glories of the Louvre, and here I wandered for hours at a time until I thought I would drop and surely never be able to dance in the evening. This was May 1907, and the following September found me in Marienbad, awaiting the command to appear before the King of England. While in Paris, I met Madame Yvette Gilbert, whose unique talent has made her popular and esteemed the wide world over. I gladly complied with her request to dance at a charity matinee which she was organizing at the Théâtre Sarah Bernhardt. Later I felt that it was as if I had cast my bread upon the waters— and it had been returned to me after many days, for it was through the generous efforts of this great artiste and her husband, Dr. Schiller, that I was enabled to dance for His Majesty. An introduction to the Princess Murat, and through her to Mrs. Hall Walker, further paved the way for me, and I might say, too, with roses, for a few days afterwards I was summoned to dance before King Edward." and I remember that it was with fear and trembling that I began my work, although when in the midst of any of my dances I am seldom cognizant of any personality near. But I think I should be forgiven if, that once, the thought of England's king watching me gravely influenced me, and afterwards I realized favorably I think it was the happiest moment of my life when he took my hand with his calm great dignity and told me he considered my art a beautiful one and my dances worthy of the word classical. Before I went away, Mrs. Hall Walker whispered to me, His Majesty was so pleased with you that if you go to London, perhaps you will have the good fortune to appear before the Queen, too. Oh! "'Do you really think so?' I cried, and my emotion was so genuine "'that tears gathered slowly in Mrs. Hall-Walker's beautiful eyes. "'Truly, I have not lived, struggled, and suffered over my work in vain. "'So I had cast my bread, had I not?' for had I not responded to Madame Gilbert's call in Paris, and thus made her happy, I should probably not have been entertained by Mrs. Hall Walker, and thus my precious dream would not have been realized. A hard, busy year successfully ended. I felt I had now earned a holiday, and happy and full of new enthusiasm took the first train that would bring me to my friend's baron de charner and his dear wife Martha in their lovely home morion near Bern. a more delightful three weeks could not be imagined and it was with genuine regret that i bade them adieu just two days before i had to start my winter season nineteen o seven eight which now that it is over after touching prague hamburg berlin and london I can truthfully say was a success from beginning to end. By no means, though, imagine that all the between times were filled with good fortune. Far from it. A necessary evil in the life of an artist seems to be the theatrical agent. Alas, however, my dealings with these have not been of the rosiest. I have had several experiences rather interesting and very typical of the way in which young artists are taken advantage of. It was an eye-opener to me, yet it has not even now taught me to be less trusting. This agent, Concert Agent S. of Berlin, offered me a contract for Hanover, which, however, never materialized other than in letters and verbal conversations. I objected strongly to the conditions of the same, and refused to accept unless my terms were agreed to. Although this was the case, he posed as having full power to act for me, and proceeded to arrange with the directoire for the preliminary announcements of the forthcoming dance recital. I knew nothing of this, and just two or three days before the date set by him for my appearance, I received a hurried message asking when I would leave for Hanover. I was more than astonished, and after a lengthy discussion he told me that in order to get the guarantee I demanded, he himself had used a notluge to the Hanover director, i.e. that he, Agent S., "'would pay half out of his own pocket "'if the director would give the other half. "'Are you prepared to carry out your promise to the director?' "'He laughed rudely and said, "'Oh, no!' "'Naturally, I felt something was very out of order "'and immediately telegraphed to Hanover "'that I would not come, and they were not to expect me. "'This caused no little excitement.' and before many days had passed, I had a letter from the agent S demanding that I should pay the sum of about 500 marks, expenses in which the preparation for my Gastspiel had involved them by return post. Naive. Of course I didn't send 500 marks by return post. Shortly afterwards I was summoned to court. The Hanover director was suing me, I needed but to tell the judge the story to have his sympathy, but before the case ended the Agent S. had sworn falsely, and it came to light that the theatre had offered, by half, better conditions than I had demanded through my agent. The agent had kept this a secret, and succeeded in making me believe that the half only of what I had demanded had been offered, or could be obtained. So, you see, the said agent, besides working for his ten percent, also wanted to cheat me out of two-thirds of my rightful gain. Needless to say, I won the case, and now the concert agency of Hanover is suing Agent S for the amount. I hope they too will win. He evidently thought that, matters being in such an advanced stage at Hanover, I should be influenced, and give in to his terms rather than disappoint the public. Another type, a big, burly, blustering, conceited German who, having been unable to get along in his own country, left for England and lived his peculiar life in London and in the suburbs for seven years together with his very obnoxious wife, a young but hard, shrewd Hungarian Jewess. Another S. It almost makes me feel suspicious of agents whose names begin with S, but that would be unjust. This German couple were most amusing. They grew positively angry and flew into a rage when one recognized them as German. We are English. My, but outward appearance, and then the accent told the sad, sad tale. This man was like an overgrown baby elephant in many ways. He had a red moon face, sort of an apology for a nose, and two watery blue eyes that were never quiet. She dark as night and with a bitter, bitter tongue, a well-matched pair, but she had the reins in her hand. Before the contract was signed, glorious sunshine and roses. After, thunderclouds and hailstorms for nine months life was for me an utter misery to be in the hands of such inhuman people was worse than words can describe for they rejected no means to force their views on me even trying to make me believe i was mad yes raving mad it came about in this way once when through his vulgar mode of reclaim we met with a partial failure they tried to make me believe i was doomed and could never start again unless they felt inclined to help me, and to enable them to do so, they tried to force me almost by laying hands on me to sign a contract not to marry for the duration of the existing contract and its two prolongations, i.e. for five years. As they knew marriage would make void any contract, they wanted to be sure of their booty, not being able to force me, they flew at me with the question, "'Do you know what they say of you?' "'No, but perhaps it would be interesting to know. You seem so absurdly excited about something,' I answered. "'Well,' they said, and this in a weird theatrical whisper, "'You are mad, raving mad. We ought to have you put into an asylum.' this struck me merely as amusing so i kept as quiet and cool as the mountain lakes and invited his rage whilst his wife with clenched hands and frenzied expression flew at me saying i should like to strangle you why don't you i smilingly replied this was just one month before this adventurous pair broke the then existing contract with me in that they ran away with my money at the close of my very successful Paris engagement. A good large sum, too, of four figures. I had been foolish, and had allowed him to collect it at the office for me upon the condition that he handed it over, less his commission, within 24 hours. The 24 hours are still pending. That was May 1907. Instead, I received a letter saying, When you get this, I'll be in Geneva. Voila! Thank God, though, I was free again, and my future bright, so let the thief have the money. Another time, two women, one well-known in the theatrical profession and to the world too, cheated me out of my rightfully due money, and now say, If you think we owe you money, go legally to work to get it. And this sentence, uttered by the shrewder of the two, was accompanied by a smile verging on a sneer, while her hands, as usual, ungloved, we had met again after one year at the home of a mutual acquaintance in Paris, and were now standing waiting for a cab, were stuffed into the outside pockets of her very mannish-looking coat but it seems to be the principle of the two women not to pay debts unless positively cornered. I believe their hotel bills in Marseilles are still owing, and that was two years ago exactly.